You can turn to Luke chapter 11, be in verses 1 to 4, really the, the whole passage is through verse 13, I just didn't think I could make it that far. In C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters, some of you have read that, it's a fictional book about uh, you know, a senior demon named Screwtape corresponding with his nephew Wormwood, and, and they're corresponding in their attempt to lead a man who they call their patient to lead this man to their father, which is Satan, to lead this man to hell. And one of the tactics that, that Screwtape writes to his young protege there to distract the patient from the enemy, who from a demon's perspective is the Lord, One of the tactics to distract that man is noise. They say if we can keep him distracted with noise, then, quote, the melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. And they go on to discuss their desire to fill the entire universe with noise. And Screwtape even boasts that they've done quite well in filling this world with noise, the noise of distractions. They've made great strides. Screwtape says, but he admits there's ongoing research as to how we might fill the earth with more distraction. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote that in 1942, and I would say the noise has been turned up a little bit. When we aren't working, we're used to being entertained, you know, TV and internet and social media, and I'm not saying these things in and of themselves are evil, video games and cell phones, they all beckon us for our time and our attention and exhausted by the demands of life and our busy schedules, we often give ourselves over to these things. Even when we do pray, we find ourselves distracted within maybe 20, 30 seconds of beginning to pray as, as we, we want to in our sin sort of go to what we consider to be more pressing matters, our to-do lists, or worrying about the next appointment or the hard conversation that we have to have. And we snap to and we refocus and we we confess our inattention and 20 seconds later our mind wants to drift again and we may grow discouraged and disappointed. The reality is if if we would own this truth, there's hope for us this morning. The iPad is not the problem. The iPhone is not the problem. The next appointment or the to-do list is not the problem. There's something in us that pulls us away from focused prayer Uh, individually and corporately. There's something in my heart that begs us to stay away from prayer. But there's hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He provides grace for weary sinners like you and me. God invites us to himself, distracted minds and all, to find rest in him and to, to, to glory in the reality that we get to speak with the Lord and we get to address him as Father. You know, last week we looked at Mary and Martha and the importance of the word of Christ as as Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus while Martha distracted herself and busied herself. And so we saw last week the importance of that word. And this week the word teaches us through Christ that God hears us when we pray. Not only does God speak, But God hears, God listens. And in Luke 11, Jesus instructs us in the type of prayer that God delights in hearing. So we've got 
Four points this morning. First, God-centered prayer treasures the God we worship. God-centered prayer treasures the God we worship. Look in the first, uh, first verse and the first part of uh, the second verse. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. God-centered prayer treasures the God we worship. Now, now we've made point, we've made a point of saying that when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, that he's going to focus particularly, not, not exclusively, but particularly in preparing his disciples for his impending departure. And so in the last few weeks, we've seen that, that, that disciples of Christ, followers of Christ are meant to be loving neighbors who give of themselves to those who are in need. We've seen that, that disciples of Christ are meant to be those who give themselves to the word of Christ and the message concerning Christ, the gospel. And now we're called to be a community, a people of, of prayer. So we're going to, really take this one text and kind of break it out over two weeks. So this will be sort of a part one of 11, 1 through 13. Today we'll make it through verse 4. You know, the disciples, this is not the first time that Jesus had been found praying. We've even come across passages already in our in our exposition of Luke, that Jesus is often found praying to the Father. But on this occasion, it stirs something in one of his disciples who has seen Jesus consistently and fervently praying to the Father, and he asks to be taught by the Lord. He desperately desires Jesus' instruction on prayer. And my Hope for us this morning is that we are similarly moved as we see that Jesus Christ, the God-man, found it necessary to pray. That we too might be moved. If if prayer was a fundamental part of Jesus' walking in righteousness, His wisdom and His having strength to fulfill the mission for which He had been sent. My hope is that we would echo the words of this disciple. Lord, teach us to pray. And so what Jesus does is he gives us a sort of a, a model prayer. It's an outline of the sorts of things that we should I- include when we pray to the Lord. It's not that we can never go to this prayer. It's not that we can never directly pray the lines of this prayer. But I don't think this prayer is given to us just so that we can have it on repeat and it's the only words we can bring before the Father, every time we pray personally or every time we pray to the church, this is all the words that we have. It's not that. It's, it's a model. It's an outline for how we ought to pray. And what we see just generally before we dive into the specifics is that this prayer focuses a lot less on being centered on myself and a lot more on centered on God and His glory. It's less about what I want and more about God's rule God's holiness and our real legitimate needs, not, our, not necessarily our wish list, but our needs before the Lord. In short, we see that our prayer should be not man-centered, but God-centered. And so we see in Jesus' example here what this sort of prayer sounds like. And so we find that we should first address God, or we can address God as 
Father. This is the basic pattern of prayer in Scripture to pray to the Father through the work of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. By that, I don't mean that we can never address Jesus or we can never address the Holy Spirit in prayer. We can. They are persons of the Trinity. But the basic pattern of Scripture is to address the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, our text this morning is a Trinitarian text. We have the Son praying to the Father, then teaching us to pray to the Father. And at the end of our extended passage there in verse 13, it says, Jesus says, the Heavenly Father is going to send to you the Holy Spirit. This is a passage that teaches us something about the Trinity. And specifically, we see the three persons of the Trinity at work. At work. Now, now, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is difficult for us to sort of wrap our heads around. God is an infinite person. We are finite creatures. But we know this, that God is one in three. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And like the baptism passage that we studied in chapter 4, the end of chapter 3, somewhere in there, all three persons of the Trinity show up in the same text. So it can't be that God sort of morphs from, well, now I'm going to manifest myself as the Father. Now I'm going to manifest myself as the Son. Or, or now I'm going to manifest myself as the Holy Spirit. That's an old heresy called modalism that still hangs on today in some certain denominations. But this is not who God has revealed himself to be. He's not a God who sort of shows up as the Father, but then He transforms into the Son sometimes, and He transforms into the Spirit at other times. God eternally exists as one God in three persons. Now, why, why in the world go there? Why? Because it, it's important if we're talking about treasuring the God that we get to address in prayer. If we're talking about treasuring God to whom we pray, we want to properly understand Him so that we might properly address him in prayer. And what, I, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is we want to be careful not to dishonor the Lord by praying like modalists. We're not, we're not modalists. We don't believe that God sort of shows up as different, different persons at different times. We're not modalists, so we want to be careful that we don't pray like modalists. And so sometimes we get a little loose with our language and we say something like, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for our Sins, or thank you, Father, for constantly making intercession for us. Well, we want to be, we want to be careful with the way that we use our language to not uh, apply to the Father the specific work of the Son. So hopefully, the greatness of God is, as seen in the Trinity and, and our inability to fully wrap our minds around all that He is makes it all that more amazing for us that we get to address Him in prayer. And not only that, but we get to relate to the first person of the Trinity as Father. And this word, Father, it stresses a particular relationship that we can only have through the Son. This is not sort of general fatherhood of God over all creation. This is a specific relationship that you have through the work of Christ. When you turn from your sin and you trust in Him. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus said, No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses 
to reveal him. We are not children of God by our physical birth. We are children of God by our new birth, by being born again by the Spirit of God. And the result of this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is faith in Jesus Christ. And when you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you become a child of God. It would be a terrible tragedy this morning if someone who does not know God through Jesus Christ to sit through a sermon and think, you know, my greatest need is that I could become a better prayer. I just need to learn how to pray better. No, if we're outside of Christ, our greatest need is to see our, our sin as rebellion against Him and to see that God has made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death and resurrection on the cross for us to be reconciled, for the rebellion to be put down, that we might be reconciled to God, declared righteous in Christ, and adopted into His family as a child. But for those of us who, who have faith in Christ this morning, one of the wonderful truths about being adopted into God's family on the basis of Christ's work, not on the basis of our own work, is that the privilege of calling God Father is not reserved for a select few, particularly righteous individuals. If you are in Christ, you may confidently address God as Father because you're not accepted by God and adopted into His family because you've achieved a certain status. It's because you've been united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you are in Christ, if you're in the Son, then you are a child of God. We can address God as Father. And when we... Pray, we should keep in mind that we are addressing a kind and a caring Father who has made a way for us to become His child. Now, we'll have more to say on that next week as Jesus illustrates it and applies it, and we'll have a little bit more to say on it later in this sermon. But another thing that fatherhood would communicate in this culture is not only kind, caring, concern for a son, but it would actually speak to authority. We address not only a kind and compassionate father, but one who has authority over all the universe. And we see that as we approach God as father and we have this, this intimate relationship with God through Christ, it doesn't lead us, though, to be sort of flippant or to act as if God is no big deal. We pray also for God's name to be treated as holy, father, hallowed be your name. You know, you could say something like, sanctified be your name, or may your name be considered holy or declared holy. May you be revered. God, this is a prayer for God to act, to demonstrate the fame of his name, the uniqueness, the sanctification, the holiness of his name. And he does this uniquely in the way that he saves his people. Psalm 111.9 says this, He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. So the prayer is that God would demonstrate His, his set-apartness, His uniqueness, His holiness, and that the whole earth would be full of His glory as He works for His people in this world. 
So in prayer, we said it's not man-centered, it's God-centered. We begin with God and we focus on His supremacy, praying that His glory will be proclaimed in all the world, that His name would be hallowed, sanctified in the nations. We want the glory of this salvation that's available in Christ Jesus to be known throughout the earth for His wisdom and His justice and His love and His power to be seen clearly in the cross of Christ. And ultimately, this is God's work. He will not share His glory with another. He magnifies His own glory and protects the reputation of His own name. But, like many of the things that God promises to do and will do, He accomplishes this through the prayers of the saints. So God-centered prayer treasures the God that we worship. Secondly, God-centered prayer anticipates the kingdom. You see that at the end of verse 2, your kingdom come. Though it is true that in the incarnation, the kingdom of God is, is present, is being proclaimed, it's in their midst as Christ has come to this earth. The power of Christ's kingdom is being demonstrated in the casting out of, of demons and the healing of of sickness and the proclamation of the kingdom and even the raising of the dead. And it's also true that after the resurrection, Jesus has all authority handed to him in heaven and on earth as he ascends to the right hand of the Father. But as Wayne alluded to in our prayer this morning, we we await the final consummation of this kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, the rule of God's kingdom has been given over to the Son, and we pray for that day when it's fully realized in our midst. In Isaiah 32, it says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And when this king reigns, Isaiah says, The fool will no more be called noble, and the scoundrel will will no longer be said to be honorable. Well, we still await that day where the fool isn't lifted up and esteemed, where the scoundrel isn't considered honorable. We still live in that time where foolishness is celebrated and scoundrels are honored, but we long for that day. We pray and we plead with God for that day when the upside-down values of this world are eradicated at the return of Christ. And He eradicates evil and reigns in righteousness. Nearly the last words of our Bible are, Come, Lord Jesus. We pray and we long for that day when Christ returns to sit upon the throne of David and rules over the world. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You know, we might say that our primary motivation for desiring the coming of the kingdom, is that the name of the Lord then will be reverenced in all the earth. He will put down the rebellion of the nations. So as we pray, it's okay to to want to be rid of this world system. It's okay to want to be done with this frail body that's prone to sin and weakness. It's okay to want to ask the Lord to remove this pressing trial. But, But something else as we approach the Lord should be breaking our hearts. And it's that God's name is profaned among the nations. And we long for that day when Christ returns and rules on His throne. We will overcome evil and wickedness. We will dwell with God. God's name will be hallowed in the whole earth when Christ rules in that kingdom. So we treasure God. We anticipate the kingdom. 
Third, we recognize our physical dependence. There in verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. We anticipate this, this future work of God at the return of Christ, but we also recognize that God is our provider in the present. We ask Him to give us our daily bread. Now, it's really tempting as a, as a preacher to want to spiritualize this bread and, and talk, preach hard about the bread of life, and, but I'm not sure that's, that's the meaning of the text. So it'd make for good preaching, but we're not bound by what makes for good preaching. We're bound by the text. And besides, I think if we, if we spiritualize that portion of the text, we lose something of God's care for His people in the, presence. He, in the present. He has not only met our greatest spiritual need, which is sin, but He, has met, he meets our daily needs, pictured here with bread. You know, in ancient Israel... Bread was the sustenance of life. Bread could mean the difference between life and death for a family. So bread here, I think, is, a, is symbolic of all of our, what, what I'm going to say, our legitimate physical needs. God is the God of life. He gives us breath. He gives us a heartbeat. He gives us provision. So we ask Him to take charge of us and provide for us those things which we need, those things that are necessary for us. So Jesus teaches the disciples here and teaches us to pray that God would provide what is necessary each day. It reminds us of manna in the wilderness that was provided just enough for that day. And so what does that do when God provides for us what we need for a day? It teaches us to depend on Him. It teaches us to depend on the Lord. So we pray to the Father because He provides for us and He cares for us. In the next chapter, Jesus will instruct His disciples that you don't have to be anxious about life. If you look around in the sky and you see birds and they they land on a nest and, and you look in this field and you see the lilies of the field and if God cares and provides for the bird and if He clothes the lilies of the field, then you should not fear. You should not be anxious. How much more will He provide for you? So we come to God and we ask for that which we, we need. It's not that we can't ask for, for healing. Lord, take this sickness. We can ask for those sorts of things. But particular emphasis is given here to those things that we need. You know, J.I. Packer says, God fixes our prayers on the way up. If He doesn't answer the prayer we made, He will answer the prayer we should have made. That's good news for us. You know, God knows what you need and He delights in giving His children what they need, but he, he delights in answering prayer. He delights in hearing from his children what they need as they request their daily bread or those things that are necessary for daily life as we depend on him. You know, we might say, we might be tempted to, to scoff at that and say, I don't need the Lord to provide daily bread. I go to work. I work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. I earn my bread. I provide for myself. 
But as a Christian, we recognize that God is even the one who gives us that very job. He's the one that gives us the strength to do that job. He's the one that keeps our heart beating while we perform our job so that we can make money and even buy that bread. You know, the mark of a, of a follower of Christ is a humble realization that we are completely and utterly dependent on the Lord of the universe. If we aren't praying, this is true for churches and true for people, if we aren't praying, it is because we've convinced ourselves deep in our hearts that we don't need the Lord. We don't need His provision because I can do it. You know, we would probably, most of us in the church would never say, I don't need the Lord, but we announce it with our actions when we fail to consistently go to the Lord and ask for His provision for us. You know, we mentioned in the, in the beginning the danger of distraction, the danger of noise in our lives, but there, there may be an even more formidable enemy that we face, and that's, that's our own sense of self-sufficiency, our own sense of independence, our own self-righteousness. Again, we would never say this, but maybe somewhere we've convinced ourselves that with my money and my talents and my abilities and my hard work, I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. I don't need to go to the Lord in quiet prayer. Why would I, why would I do that when I could be busy? May we be humbled this morning. May we turn from our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness, and our independence. I remember sitting at a shepherd's conference several years ago, and I can't even remember who the speaker was at this point. It's not what matters. But he said, prayerlessness is the Christian's declaration of independence from God. And that hit me like a ton of bricks as I had to confess my all-too-pervasive tendency in my heart to think, I got this. I got this. At least that's what my actions were Screaming about my life. In fact, we now turn to verse 4 where we see we need to seek the Lord's forgiveness. We need to seek the Lord's forgiveness for our sins. Look there in verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. God-centered prayer, lastly, recognizes our spiritual dependence. Our spiritual dependence. We have a physical dependence on the Lord of the universe, and we have a spiritual dependence on the Lord of the universe. We not only need Him for our physical sustenance, but we need Him for spiritual vitality. You know, interestingly enough, Augustine pointed to to this verse in his debates with people that were saying, you know what, I think we can be sinlessly perfect in this life. I think we can get to a point where we will never sin again. And Augustine went to this verse and said, then why did Jesus tell his disciples? This is a paraphrase. This is not how Augustine talked. But why did Jesus tell his disciples, forgive us our sins? And he, he was right. He was right to point to this text. That we will not reach a point where we are without the need to pray, verse 4. We will never get beyond verse 4 until we are with Christ in glory when we will become like Him because we will see Him as He is. Humbly, we have to admit admit to ourselves and admit to the Lord that this means we will never run out of material to pray about. If we are called to confess our sins, we will always, unfortunately, have something to pray about. 
And since churches are made up of sinful people like us, as a church, we don't move beyond the need to confess our own frailty before the Lord and seek His mercy and His kindness. We admit to God that though we've experienced His forgiveness through Christ, we are still those who wrestle with the flesh and oftentimes choose to sin against Him. So we ask afresh for the free and the, the free mercy of a kind Father through Jesus Christ. And we praise Him as we confess our sins and know that if we do confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we probably should wrestle with this just, just a little bit. Right? Doesn't, doesn't, maybe the, the question in your mind is, doesn't Paul say in Colossians that Jesus Christ has wiped away all of our trespasses by nailing them to the cross? Isn't the very idea that we are made righteous in Christ, isn't that the promise that our sins, past, present, and future, were all placed on Christ, and now we've been counted righteous? Yes. Yes, the sacrifice of Christ is once for all. We cannot and should not seek to replicate that as we take communion once a month. We're not, we're not trying to uh, make something, we're not trying to re-justify ourselves. When we ask for the Lord's forgiveness here and we confess our sins, we're not seeking to re-justify ourselves. We don't need baptism or communion to do that. We stand perfectly righteous in Christ. And though that can never change, sin does harm us and it does harm our communion and fellowship with the Lord. One commentator said this, The scene is not a courtroom where the final judgment is being pronounced. You can go to the book of Romans for this final judgment, Romans 8. That's not the scene though. Here, the scene is a family setting in which a son or daughter confesses his or her sins to the father, not to become part of the family, not to remain part of the family, but in order that nothing might stand in the way of that communion and fellowship with the Lord. And so knowing that as, even as those who have been justified and nothing can shake that, nothing can take that away, knowing that, we continue to sin, though. We pray like David prayed in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And forgive us our sins, God. There's another difficulty I think in verse 4, and it's with that word for. Forgive us our sins, Lord, for we forgive others. So another question I think arises from the text. Is our forgiveness of others the basis on which we are forgiven? Yes and no. I know you love that answer. No, because the forgiveness that we receive is only ever on the basis of God's grace, through faith. But those who have received this grace are motivated, and more than that, empowered to forgive those who sin against them. And there's, there, this is so true to the point that Jesus isn't afraid to really switch these two around. He does it here. Forgive us 
as we forgive, for we have forgiven those indebted to us. He does it in Matthew 18 where he tells this parable about a man who, who owes some money, a debt he can never repay, and he's forgiven that debt, and then he goes out and he chokes somebody that owes him a debt that could be repaid in a matter of months. And Jesus warns everyone who hears that. If you do this, the Father will refuse to forgive you. Oh, what are you, what are you saying? Am I, he's saying that God's people who have experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ are those who forgive others, those who are able to forgive others because our trust is ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ where he has forgiven us by nailing our sins to the cross. We are physically dependent on the Lord. We are spiritually dependent on him and that we seek his forgiveness. And we also need his protection then and lead us not into temptation. When we pray, we should plead with God that the one who orders the universe would keep us from that which might lead us into sin. This might sound confusing to us because we know that God cannot tempt anyone. He He cannot be tempted, nor can He tempt anyone. We know that God doesn't lay a snare for us with the intention that we would walk into that snare and that we would sin against him. This couldn't happen because that's not the type of God that God is. And it couldn't happen because sin doesn't come from God. Sin comes from lust when we're enticed from our own heart, James says. Our own desires are what lead us to temptation. You know, interestingly, the word trial and the word temptation comes from the same Greek word. And then the context determines how they are translated. I think, I think temptation is probably the best translation here. But it's true, though, that, that our trials often become the very opportunities for us to be tempted and to sin against God. These trials could be persecution. They could be physical hardships, physical maladies. It could be someone sinning against us. And it's in these moments that our sinful hearts are often lured out and they're enticed to sin and to rebel against God or, or God forbid, to walk away from Christ. And so this prayer is not accusing God of tempting us. It's, it's, oh, Lord, keep us from those circumstances. Keep us from those trials, those places, or those people that might lead us down this path where my heart would be drawn out to sin against you. Again, it's a picture of humility. We don't find Jesus' model here asking God, Lord, show me how close I can get to, to sin without actually crossing the line. How close can I get where I'm just kind of barely being tempted, but I can still resist and I can still keep a clean conscience and say, you know what, I don't think I sinned against the Lord because I'm going to really draw this legalistic line in the sand and say I haven't sinned. We don't find that. Lord, keep us as far away. I know the tendency of my own heart. I know how my heart is enticed. Lord, keep me as far away from sinning against you. Keep me from those trials, those situations that might entice me to, to sin. You know, as we reflect on Jesus' instruction here, I think what is surprising is, is the simplicity and the brevity of the Lord's model 
prayer. You know, it really stands in contrast to how most people in the history of the world have thought about prayer. It's common to find cultures who historically view prayer as a formula with these long, drawn-out invocations in order to win their deities, to win their gods' attention. Think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There's a showdown at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. And many of you are familiar with this story where two bulls are prepared, and they're going to offer these as burnt offerings. Elijah would call on Yahweh to consume the offering to demonstrate that there's only one true God, the God of Israel. And the prophets of Baal would likewise, they would call on Baal to consume this offering and demonstrate that Baal has the power and the authority to do this. And Elijah says, why don't you guys go first? And for hours, the text says, for hours they call upon their God. They're crying out. The text says they are cutting themselves. They are raving in the hopes that they can gain the attention of their deity for hours upon hours. And Elijah, of course, takes the opportunity to mock them. But when Elijah's turn comes, he prays two sentences, two sentences, and immediately God consumes the offering, answering Elijah's prayer. You know, here's the good news for us this morning. As we wrap up, we don't have to win God's attention. We don't have to rave about. We don't have to cut ourselves. We don't have to win God's ear. We don't have to twist his arm. We don't have to seek to manipulate him. We don't have to go through these crazy rituals. We have his ear through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, one of the the many things that Jesus accomplished for us is bold access to the throne of grace. Hebrews says it's it's through the, the, the veil of the flesh of Christ that was ripped for us that we are able to enter into God's presence. You know, the price has been paid. The victory has been won. It cost Jesus his life, but we can confidently and humbly come before God and address him as Father. Let's do that now. Father, we are humbled as we recognize and we freely admit our complete and utter dependence on you. Lord, not only physically, but, but spiritually, you have made, us, made a way through Christ for us to be reconciled to you. And Lord, we freely confess, we make no qualms about the fact that we continue to sin. Lord, would you forgive us? Would you empower us to walk in righteousness? Lord, would you give us a, through your Holy Spirit, self-control and self-discipline as we desire to be faithful to you in prayer. Thank you for the work of Christ that even makes it possible. In Jesus' name, amen.